right, uh, today we're going we're gonna to be continuing on in our Raising Dry Bones series, uh, but we're going to take a turn, and um, we've moved on from riding the ship. Now we're going to jump into the book of Nehemiah. All right, Nehemiah is one of the, uh, if you've ever read through the book of Nehemiah, I've ever studied through the book of Nehemiah, you'll understand that he's one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament. May not be one of the best known, but he's definitely one of the greatest of the Old Testament. But before we jump in, instead of doing this at the end, I want to do this at the beginning. I want to give you some homework. All right. And I want you guys to do this homework. I don't want you to say you did it. I want you to really do it. I want you to read. All right. I want you to start with the book of Esther. And I want you to uh, read how God started moving among his people and raising Esther up to be the queen. And then move to Ezra, and which is always usually linked with Nehemiah. Uh, and then when you're finished with Ezra, jump into Nehemiah and read it slowly and carefully. And I promise you'll get more out of this series as we go through it. You'll get more out of it every week if you do this homework. All right, so read Esther, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Esther and Ezra both are 10 chapters, Nehemiah's 13. So it won't take you long, but just, just read through it. Read through it carefully, all right? But I'm, I'm excited about Nehemiah. I'm really excited that we're going through this book. We're going to learn some things that'll, that'll apply to our personal lives, but we're also going to uncover some things that'll guide us into our rebuilding here at Crossway and our revitalization. And then we're going to also end up understanding a crucial part of Old Testament history. All right, so I want to set some context before we start reading. I want us to understand what all is happening in history here. So we all remember back in, in Genesis, Genesis 12, where God called Abraham to leave his country. God called him to leave and to follow him. And so he did. Abraham obeyed. And as he did, God multiplied his descendants, right? Well, then later on, his descendants, the Israelites, they were captured and they were made slaves in Egypt uh, for 400 years or so until God called them out under the leadership of who? Moses, that's right, that's right. And eventually they, they were allowed to enter the promised land after hundreds of years uh, and, and struggles and faithlessness that they struggled with. They, they were finally uh, allowed to enter the promised land. But the high point of the history of the Israelites came under King David. Um, under King David, when he was called to sit on the throne, he expanded that nation for 40 years and he also uh, expanded their knowledge of God during that time as well. But then at that point, we know after that, things started to go downhill again for the Israelites. After David's son, King Solomon, died, Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? And the northern kingdom had how many tribes? Ten. Ten tribes, right? They were referred to as Israel. And then the southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. That's right. They had two tribes. And, but because of their disobedience, Israel was conquered and the ten tribes, they, got, they were scattered and they became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. And then uh, even though the southern tribes, the two southern tribes saw their disobedience and saw uh, what happened to them, they saw it all happen, they also continued to rebel against God. And in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army captured them. They were captured and Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were knocked down and the temple was burned. All right. So uh, um, at that point, the people uh, became, they were deported and they were again forced into slavery. Uh, and their history had now come full circle, right? They were, they were captured, forced into slavery, kept there for 400 years. They were, they were brought out of slavery and, and made free again. 
But then it come full circle. They, they were now being forced back into slavery. And I can only imagine how difficult that was, how traumatic that had to be for the Jews. They, they saw all this death and destruction around them. But on top of it, they were forced to leave their homes and travel about a thousand miles away to a foreign country and live as slaves. But we, we see all over Scripture that God didn't forsake his people. We see that everywhere. He allowed the Persians to take over the Babylonians and he moved King Cyrus to make a law that let the Jews return home. That let them return to their to their land. And it happened in three stages. Over about a hundred years, they were allowed to move back to Jerusalem. But as they moved back over the course of this hundred years, they realized, what did they find out about Jerusalem? It was still destroyed. It was still in ruins. And so living there was difficult for them. It was dangerous for them. And uh, Cyrus ordered, uh, after he, he, he made an order which allowed 500 or 50,000 Israelites to return to Judah with Zerubbabel and started to rebuild the temple. He, he made an order where they began to rebuild the temple, but they got discouraged and quit. It wasn't going as fast as they thought it could go. They didn't have as much help as they thought they needed. So they stopped. They quit. And then, so God sent them prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and he encouraged, the, 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 both of these prophets encouraged them to finish the rebuilding. And then Ezra was sent to help them restore their passion for God. And so then we um, come to here to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah tells his story, as we're going to see, in the 20th year of the reign of of Artaxerxes. And at this point, Persia had replaced Babylon as the most powerful part of the region. And the Persians ruled a little bit differently than, uh, than the others had. Uh, the Persians were committed to moving people back to their native lands, right? They didn't, they didn't take them off and send them off into other places. They wanted to move them back into their native lands. So these are people that had been captured and they were still considered slaves, but they would move them back into their native lands, give them uh, lands and give them a little bit of freedom. They had the ability to live with some freedom, freedom as long as they supported the state and paid their taxes. So they were still considered captured, but they moved around in their native land with a little bit of freedom. So as we study through the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see that God initiates another move back to the promised land. All right. The book has three divisions. The first six chapters cover the rebuilding of the wall. Chapters uh, seven through 10 deal with the renewing of Jerusalem's worship. And the last three chapters address the repopulation and the, re the revival of God's people. And so we, through the book of Nehemiah, we can follow closely the things that happen and the things that need to be happening within our body here at Crossway. Not only in our individual lives, but here as a body, as a church. So, you ready? After all that, you ready? Let's, let's get going. I'm excited to start. Uh, this, is, this is a good place for us to start this morning. It's going to be an emphasis on prayer. Alright, so if everybody's there, let's all stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Nehemiah chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of the brothers, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and the reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. 
Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the people where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And, the, and they are thy servants and thy people whom thou didst redeem thy great power and by thy strong hand. And, O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servants successful. Lives we can take in rest in the fact that you have laid it all out. You have caused it to be. And, Lord, we can, we can rest in that. And, 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 Lord, we love you for it. We thank you for today. We thank you for all that are gathered here this morning. I pray now that, uh, that as, we, as we go and dive into your word, that you will open the ears and the hearts and the minds of those here today, hearing what you intend for them to hear and learning what you intend for them to learn. Lord, we love you. We give you all the honor, all the praise, and above everything else, all of the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so... <clears throat> As I said, prayer is um, is one of the main themes of Nehemiah, and it's and it's really it's the secret to the success of Nehemiah. The prayer we just read here in in chapter one uh, is one of twelve prayers that we're going to look at as we as we read through this entire book, and it begins with this prayer here in Persian. It closes with a prayer in Jeru in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah will learn, will see as we go through this, that his prayers, they're filled with, uh, with devotion and thanksgiving to God and confession, but they're also prayers of anguish and protection and commitment. And so this is a story that uh, is persistent in personal and corporate prayer, not just prayer when we come together here as a body, but also personal individual prayer in our own lives. So prayer here gives Nehemiah perspective and it sharpens his vision and we'll see that it also minimizes his anxiety. All right. So what we'll see is that his public life is the outflow of his personal life, both of which are full of prayer. Right. His personal life or his public life is the outflow of his personal life, which is steeped in and shaped by a lifestyle of prayer. His devotion to God, his dependence on him for everything and his desire for God to get all of the glory directed absolutely everything about his life. He knew that the only things that were that God would bless were those that would start with and were continually bathed in prayer. All right. And so this morning, I want us to understand that that Nehemiah went through a process of prayer that, that has application and relevance to us here today in, in our individual lives, but also in our life as a church. So the first place he started was with a concern about the problem. And that's point number one, concern about the problem, concern about 
about the problem. Let me read the first four verses again. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Halakiah, uh, Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the ca captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And we know from verse 11, the last part of the, uh, of the chapter, that uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king, right? He says he was the cupbearer. The cupbearer was, uh, it, was a, uh, it was a job that uh, he had to taste the king's wine before the king tasted to make sure there was no poison in it. So if he died, the king said, well, I'm not drinking that. But... Uh, it was a dangerous job, right? But it was also a rewarding job for him, right? It was a really good job. He had intimate access to the king. Not many people had intimate access to the king, and he got to live in the palace, and it was a job that provided everything that he needed. So he, was, he had a pretty good life, right? And when, it was, when, it was, when one of his brothers returned from a road trip to Jerusalem, verse 2 says that he asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity... And about Jerusalem. And that word asked it actually means to demand an answer from. So it wasn't a casual question. It was a, it was a really, for, really forceful question. He was demanding an answer from them. And so he was concerned. He was really concerned about what was going on in Jerusalem. And he could have, you know, he had a really good job. He was living in a really good place and had a, you know, was a really good spot in his life. He could have kept himself insulated if he chose to, but he didn't. He sought them out and he wanted to hear a firsthand report of what was going on. And that's an important starting point for us. All right. It's really easy for us to stay uninvolved. It's really easy for us to sit on the back row or maybe not even show up and stay uninvolved and unaware. Some of us don't even want to think about the stuff that's going on in our own lives, much less in the lives of other people. But um, even though Nehemiah, he had never been to Jerusalem himself, he heard stories about it and knew that his ancestors had been led away in chains to Babylon uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed. So he was doing what Jeremiah 51.50 had commanded him to do. And he they commanded the exiles to do. Jeremiah 51.50 says, Remember the Lord in a distant land and think on Jerusalem. And so he was thinking on Jerusalem. Right, He was remembering the exiles and he thought on Jerusalem. He listened to the report in verse 3 that their survivors were in trouble and that the wall of Jerusalem was in shambles and, and that its gates had been burned down with fire. And that phrase, uh, great trouble, meant that the people had broken down and were falling to pieces. That's what the word means. So Nehemiah, here he was broken himself over the contentment of the people in Jerusalem. They were living in ruins and they accepted it. They, they were willing to walk around the destruction and instead of being concerned enough to do something about it and about their situation, they, so, they, so they were just happy to be content to live in this destruction and this ruin and they didn't want to do anything about it. They weren't motivated to do anything about it. Listen, nothing's ever going to change in your life and nothing is ever going to change here at Crossway in the life of this church until we become concerned about the problem. That's the first thing we have to do is become concerned about the problem. Some of us have been complacent about the way our lives are going. Some of us uh, are living with rubble and it doesn't even bother us anymore. We've got just junk going on in our life and we've accepted the junk. 
And listen, if you're ready for God to do some rebuilding in your life and also right here at Crossway, then we've got to be concerned about the problem. We've got to be concerned enough to, to listen uh, to the facts. Whether we want to hear them or not, we have to listen to the facts and be concerned about the problem. What did Nehemiah do when he heard the report? It says he hit the ground and he started to weep in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That means he cried out painfully to God, right? He just cried out. He fasted as well in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Uh, fasting was only required once a year. But here we see that he goes without food for several days. As a matter of fact, as we get deeper into Nehemiah, we, we, we realize that he wept, he fasted, and he prayed for four months. Those were all a sign of his deep concern about the problem. He had a deep concern about the problem. Do we need rebuilding today? Do we need revitalization at Crossway? I'm sure we agree we do. I see all the heads bobbing up and down. But before we can ask God to rebuild, we've got to be concerned about the problem. We have to show some concern. I'll be honest. We've been talking a lot about it around here for, for several, several weeks. And some of us have big opinions. But I don't see many with concern for the problem. And those are hard words to hear. But we've got to hear the hard words. We've got to show a concern for the problem. Until we're concerned about our problem, it's not going to get fixed no, much, no matter how much lip service we get to it, no matter how many meetings we have and how much we talk about it, until we show some action and kick up some dust, it's not going to get fixed at all. There's got to be a concern with the problem, for the problem. Number two, it also, there also has to be conviction about God's character. Conviction about God's character. So after Nehemiah becomes concerned, he next shows his conviction of God's character. Verse 5 says, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So we see he calls God Lord. So we recognize God as his master. In verse 6, he refers to himself as God's servant. And so then he refers to his Lord as the God of heaven. So he acknowledged that God... His God, the God that he's praying to here, is, was above all other gods. And he referred to him as great and awesome. So God deserves to be honored, right? He deserves to be revered. He deserves to be feared by all of us because of who he is, right? Then we see Nehemiah describe God as the one who preserves the covenant. So God is truthful, faithful, and he can be trusted. Amen? All right, so Nehemiah's boss was the king. Was, was the king. He was the greatest and most powerful king on the earth. But compared to God, Artaxerxes was absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nehemiah was in Susa and his concern was for Jerusalem, which was far away from him. Right? It was really far away from where he was at. So there's two cities. There's one rich. There's one poor. There's one strong and one weak, one broken and one proud. But they were all small specks in the kingdom of God. They're all small specks in the kingdom of God. So here's the deal. When we go to God in prayer, things get put in perspective. When we go to God in prayer, we, we, the things get put in perspective. Because of his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah knew that, that God wasn't only able, but he was also willing to respond to his prayer. Right? How often do we go to God in prayer knowing he's able, but just wonder if he's willing? 
God's not only able, but he's willing to respond to our prayers. He also knew that God, that, that he didn't deserve for God to treat him fairly. That's part of that. That's why the next part of the prayer is, is confession of sin. But Job, if you remember in Job, Nehemiah's just like that. Nehemiah's encounter with God brought him to a place of repentance and confession. In Job uh, 42 verses five and six, Job said, my ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So if we're going to, be, if we're going to rebuild our lives and our church, then we've got to start with having a concern about the problem. But then we have to show a conviction of God's character. We have to know that God is willing and able to help us fix our problems, right? Then the next thing is we have confession of sin. Confession of sin. So after he became concerned about the problem, he expressed his conviction about God's character. Nehemiah now is motivated to admit his sin and the sins of the people or the sins of his people. Look at verses six and seven. It says, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night. And on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which he, we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you've commanded your servant Moses. So it's, it's one thing to have a conviction about who God is. All right, it's one thing when he asks God to hear his prayer. And when, that, that word literally means to hear with great attention. There's three things here in his confession of sin in these verses I want us to see. Number one, there's an intensity of his prayer. He has an overwhelming, he's overwhelmed with concern about his sin and he's in awe of God's character. He had a, he had a pretty, pretty long prayer, pretty long intercession. He prayed day and night, it says, spending every minute of his time in the presence of God. I'm just thinking about how, how, how long or how overwhelmed we get in the presence of God when we go to him in prayer how long do we stay there and how quick are we to get out of the presence of God? Mm. All right. So there's an intensity. Number two, there's an honesty. He was honest before the Lord. He did try to make excuses for the Israelites sin or, and he actually owned his part in their accountability. He looked at their past and their present and he knew that he was not exempt from part of, from part of the blame. He says, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. That's important for us to recognize, right? It would have been easy for him to look back and blame his ancestors, but instead he looked within himself and blamed himself for his part in their sin. It's easy for us to blame other people, especially with our issues here. Where we look around this church and we look around our own personal lives. It's easy for us to point the finger and blame other people. But what we need to learn from Nehemiah is we need to honestly confess, Lord, I'm wrong. And, and, and not only do I want to be part of the answer, I confess, or not only do I want to be part of the answer, but I confess that I'm part of the problem. We've got to realize our part in the problem. All right, so there's intensity, honesty. Here's the last one. There's an urgency in his prayer. There's urgency in his prayer. He recognized that, um, that sin's not just refusing to obey God's rules. Right? That is sin, but it's not only just that, but it's also a defiant rebellion against a holy God. 
That's what sin is. He knows, he says they acted very corruptly. He didn't try to candy coat the sin. He owned it and he called it what it was. There's a story about a uh, Boeing uh, group of employees that worked at Boeing. You know, they make the jets. A group of employees worked there. They decided that they wanted to steal one of the life rafts that were on the jet. And uh, so they did. They, they, they were able to get it out of the plant just fine, but they forgot one thing about the life raft, and that's was this, it installed and built in the life raft was an emergency locator. So when it, when it, it was automatically activated when the life raft was blown up. And so they forgot about that, and they took it out on the river, and they were having a good old time, and all of a sudden here comes the Coast Guard helicopter hovering above them. They weren't expecting that one. The point is, trying to hide our sins from God's impossible. He knows about every one of them. Numbers 32, 23 says, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. So we got to realize that, that, that sin, all sin, the things that, that we do blatantly, but the things that we've also left undone have to be identified and then confessed. So if you're trying to hide anything from God, it's better to confess it now than wait until it exposes you because it will expose you. So we've got to start by having concern for our problem. Then we have to show a conviction of God's character, which leads to a confession of sin. Here's the next point. A confidence in God's promises. A confidence in God's promises. Nehemiah spends time in confession, but he doesn't wallow in his failures. Right? He spends time confessing his sins, but he doesn't stay there. He owns what he did, and he shows confidence in God's promises. Look at verses 8 to 10. It says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, then though those, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of heaven, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. So right here in this part of the prayer, Nehemiah is remembering the words of Moses about the dangers of Israel being abandoned, but also the promise of God's mercy. So what he was getting at, this is what he was getting at. It's twofold. First, if Israel disobeyed, they were going to be sent to the foreign land. That had already been fulfilled. Right, That had already happened at this point. The second part was when it was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. Well, they were still waiting for that to happen. That hadn't been fulfilled yet. So he prayed, Lord, the first part's true. We've disobeyed. We're in captivity. But you made a promise to bring us back home and to protect us once you got us there. And that hadn't happened yet. And so he was claiming that promise and claiming that God was going to make it happen. You don't know how many Bible or how many promises are in the Bible? How many of God's promises there are in the Bible? There are 7,000, over 7,000 promises in the Bible. The better we know the Word of God, the better we're able to pray with confidence about His promises. 1 John 5, uh, 14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, that's the key word, anything according to His will, He hears us. So are you as confident as Nehemiah was about the promises of God? God said it in his word. If he said it in his word, you can believe it. You can believe it. You can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. Nehemiah got, knew God would keep his covenant with his people. He knew it and he claimed it. And he claimed it boldly. 
He also know that even even though God didn't need his help, he was ready to make a commitment to get involved. I pray that soaks into every one of our hearts today. God doesn't need any of us to rebuild this church. But do we love this church and we do we love the people of this church enough to make a commitment to get involved? That's the next point. Commitment to get involved. That's our next one. The commitment to get involved. So do you see the progression here in his prayer? Do you see how it's progressing? His concern about the problem led to, led to him being broken, right? And while he was weeping and he was fasting, he, he expressed his conviction about God's character. And then he focused on how great and awesome God is. He was reminded of his own wickedness and he cried out in confession and confessed his sin. And after owning his part in the problem, he prayed with confidence in the promises of God. And that's what led him to a commitment to get involved to fix the problem. We see that in verse 11. It says, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Y'all have all heard the saying that uh, the prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but it's getting God's done, will done on earth. You've heard that, right? But for God's will to be done on earth, he needs people to be available for him to use. So God always operates through a body, whether it's an individual body of one believer or whether it's a body, a collective body of a church of believers. And so Nehemiah was praying. His burden was for Jerusalem and his burden for them got stronger and stronger. And his vision of what needed to be done became clearer and clearer to him the more he prayed. And he didn't pray for God to send someone else. He said, here I am, God, send me. Send me. And so he knew that he would have to approach the king and request. And we're going to see this as we go through. But he knew that he would have to approach the king and request a, a three promise of God from from Proverbs 21.1, it says the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So when it comes to us, when it comes to Crossway, the real true measure of our concern is whether or not we're willing to make a commitment to get involved. It's the truth. Martin Luther said, pray as if everything depends on God, and then work as if everything depends on you. That goes for all of us, every one of us, from me to Marty to Coach to everyone else in this place. It goes for all of us. There was this college choir. They were, they were all set to perform in a, in a large church, and it was going to air live on the radio. So everything appeared to be ready, to be, to be, appeared to be set up and ready to go. And the announcer, the radio announcer, he, uh, he made his introduction and after he made his introduction, he was waiting for the choir to begin to perform. And so one person um, wasn't ready. One person in the choir was not ready. And so because that one person wasn't ready, the director refused to start. And so all this time, there was nothing but silence that was being broadcast over the radio. Let me tell you something. That's a no-no. That is a no-no. That dead air is the enemy to all radio stations. So the announcer was getting nervous, right? He was sweating. He was getting nervous. He forgot that his microphone was still turned on and that he could still be heard over the broadcast, over the radio. 
So as he, as, as he got nervous and he was hoping that the, the, uh, the choir director would hurry up and start, he said, get on with it, you old goat. <laughs> well, and he thought nothing else about it. You know, nobody in the auditorium heard it or anything. But later on in the week, the radio station got a letter from a listener, a man who had tuned in. He was listening from home. And he heard, when he heard, get on with it, you old goat, he took that message personally because he had been praying to God about his doing nothing to further the kingdom of God. And so he took that message personally, and it was enough to convict him and get him going again. Sometimes we need a wake-up call, don't we? So get on with it, you old goats. Are you concerned about your problems? Do you have a conviction about God's holy character? Are you ready to confess your sins? Do you have a confidence in God's problems? or God's promises? And are you ready to make a commitment to get involved in God's kingdom work? You can do that. And if you didn't faithfully complete these, this 40 days of prayer guide, which wrapped up today, it ended today. If you didn't faithfully complete that, start tomorrow at day one and faithfully complete it. If you did complete it, let's do it again. Over the next 40 days, let's start back over at day one. Let's start tomorrow and go over it and go through it again. We can never pray for this church and this body of believers enough. So, And when we are collectively praying the same prayers together, God will hear us. So let's start again tomorrow. And here's the second thing. And it's the hardest thing. And it's the hardest thing to hear. Be here. Show up. We can't turn things around if we don't make a commitment to be involved. I love you guys. and I, I want to see every one of you every single week, Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. I want to see you. Look, I know we've got Facebook Live and I know we've got the podcast, but that is never was never meant, meant to be a replacement for being here. Never meant to be a replacement for showing up. And I know sometimes we've got legit excuses, but listen to me at the same time when your church is dying, we need you to be here. We've got to have everybody have a commitment to being here. We're at a crossroads. We are. And I hope we realize and some of us need to make a choice. We have got to make a decision to make a choice. Do we want to be like Nehemiah and confess our sins and beg God to help us be a part of the solution? Or are we content on sitting back and watching this church die? Because if we're not a part of the solution, then we're a part of the problem. It's time to rebuild. It's time for us to rebuild. And we got to have the courage to admit that we've messed up, that we've made mistakes, that we've done things wrong. And when we become concerned enough about the way we've been living, that we confess our sins, we know that God is going to do the rebuilding work for us. He's promised to do it, but we've got to make a commitment. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Father, I just I thank you for who you are, perfect and holy and just and righteous. You've never done anything wrong. You've never led anybody down the wrong path. So, God, if we will just commit to follow you and commit to, to being in your word and commit to this body of believers here, we can trust and claim the promise that you will build your church. You said it. You will build your church. But we have to follow you, Lord, and we have to trust 
that you will do it. Lord, as we as we go into this time of invitation, I pray that you will that you will open the eyes and the ears and the minds of everybody here. And if there be any amongst us that that don't have a real relationship with your son, Jesus, that you will that we will see your hand at work and see the Holy Spirit at work this morning. We love you. We honor you. We give you all the praise and all of the glory. It's in Jesus holy name that we pray. Amen. So, why does God want to rebuild Crossway? For His glory. That's right. Yeah. To send us out to do what? To make disciples. To gather His bride. We can gather His bride out those doors. We can gather His bride in these doors if they come in. Because He said, as Cassie said this morning, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel those to come in. Either way. <laughs> Where was I? It's okay. I'm just, I'm just embarrassed by you. It's okay. <laughs> okay. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we did there's some seriousness in this morning but we, we needed to break it up a little bit but serious but back to the what i was saying god wants us to gather his bride for his glory and it's all about god's glory every bit of this is about the glory of god We've got to remember that it's not about us. It's not about what kind of music we like played. It's not about uh, what, what type of preacher you, know, do you want somebody that jumps up and down and hollers and screams and walks around. Or do you want somebody who stands up here and, and just teaches whatever the case is? It's not about all of that. It's all about the glory of God. We've got to remember that it's all about God's glory. When we start making it about us is when it starts to fall apart. And I think far too long we've made it about us. We've got to get back to the basics. We've got to get back to God. We've got to get back to Christ. That's why we exist. It's to bring glory to God, to enjoy God forever, starting right now. So if there's anybody here that doesn't know Christ, today's the day of salvation. He came, He lived, He died, lived the life that we couldn't live went to the cross, took on the sin, took on the punishment of sin that we deserve, right? The wages of sin is death. God died. Jesus hung on the cross, was humiliated, ridiculed, beaten, unrecognizable. Then he was hung on the cross and all the wrath of God poured out on him that was due us. Thrown in the tomb, God, God approved his sacrifice, raised him.